Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, which I believe demonstrates how sweet the name of Jesus Christ is in the hearts of the apostles as they proclaimed Him. And as you're turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, I wanted to read Lord's Day 11. Lord's Day 11. And there's two questions. The first question asked, why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior, or Yeshua, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves, because He saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere. The next question and answer, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Although they boast of, his, of being His, by their deeds they deny the only Savior and deliver Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all they need for their salvation. And I believe this next text that we'll be preaching on tonight really reflects that question and answer, 29 and 30 from Lord's Day 11, Acts chapter 4, and we'll read the first 22 verses. This is the Word of God. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, Annas, the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we were being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed, Standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. 
What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speak, be speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who had been miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is God's Word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for your living Word given to us through the physician Luke by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through witness of Paul and many others. Would you bless the study of, this, of your Word, this portion of your Word tonight for the good of your people here and for your glory. Amen. We're walking into a story, an ancient story, but it's our story, isn't it? We are Christian. We take our story from the one who actually made the story because Jesus along with the Holy Spirit and the Father created all things in the beginning, right? Let there be light. And there was light, and the rest of the story is God's story. But when we come into this story, it is filled with all kinds of tension. I mean, we might be familiar with the story, but the story is anything but tranquil. Peter and John are coming into a buzzsaw with the most powerful Jews in the land. These are not the kind of men you should trifle with. And if, they, if you catch their attention, you best not have that attention for very long. Why would that be? Who were these men? They were none other than the ones that had Jesus executed. Imagine you're Peter and you're John. These men that are coming to the scene that are greatly disturbed are the men who conspired to have the Lord Jesus Christ murdered. And now, Jesus' name, the one they crucified, is being shouted throughout the streets and crowds are celebrating him and thousands upon thousands have believed in the name of Jesus. This is the situation of which we come into the story. Tension everywhere and danger for these men for Peter and for John. And of course, they're disturbing the peace. The problem for the Sadducees is that they don't, they don't know what to do with them because they can't bring him before the Sanhedrin, yet it is in the evening or the afternoon, and the Sanhedrin only meets in the morning, so they must put him in prison. And of course, the captain of the guard you see, and the high priest came out. The captain of the guard is second in command to the high priest. 
captain of the guard in the Sanhedrin, is second in command in the Sanhedrin. Now, I think it is important for us to, to identify this group called Sadducees, right? Some of you know the phrase, they're Sadducee. They're just sad, these men. Sad, pathetic, powerful, vengeful, murderous men. Again, we don't go that far, but that's exactly the men you find before us this evening. What do we know about them? Well, they are the priestly caste. These are the powerful priestly caste. And what we also know about them from Acts chapter 23, verses 7 and 8, you might find those notes, is the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees, of course, acknowledge them all. These are men, the priestly caste, that are in charge of the temple, and the temple treasury is where all the money is. These men don't even believe in the resurrection. These men don't even believe in angels and demons. They don't even believe in the supernatural. And yet they're in charge of the show. What we also know about the Sadducees, and it's not much, it's not from their writing, it's from other people's writing, like Josephus and others, and actually Luke here, is that they ceased to exist in 70 A.D. because they were attached to the temple and they were destroyed as a people group at that moment when the temple died, so did the Sadducees. You could even say the Sadducees were the liberals of their day. They were the ones, the church leaders that did not believe in the resurrection or the virgin birth like we have today. They were the same kind of people. They didn't believe in those supernatural realities. What they believed in was power and money power and money. And who was their greatest ally to keep them from being assassinated and knocked off by other Jews, in fact? Could you imagine? You know who that is? It's the Romans, of course. It's the big dog on the, on the block. Yes, they had aligned themselves with the Romans in order to carry power and favor. These are the wealthiest, most powerful people in all of the Jewish people. And Luke wants to introduce you. You know, everybody in the first century would have known all of this information. Oh, we know who those guys are. Whew, they're not good. But sometimes we forget the men who are greatly disturbed that are coming to arrest Peter and John. These are Jesus' messengers. And what are they doing? That they're preaching that Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Now, of course, that would have set the Sadducees off, wouldn't it have? And these are men of power and influence, and so they have them arrested. Well, you can arrest the messengers, can't you? You can arrest the messengers. You can arrest Peter and John. In fact, you can kill the messengers. Tertullian said that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs, isn't it? You can kill members of Christ's church. You can kill Stephen, but can you kill the message? Can you imprison the gospel? Communist regimes have been trying to do that for over a century, and still the gospel goes forth. Many other totalitarian dictatorial leaderships have tried to do the same thing, many with success at first. But then nations like Iran have the fastest-growing Christian community on the planet, and we ought to laugh at that because it is quite funny, because that nation wants nothing to do with Christians. We'd rather have them imprisoned, and if you convert from Islam, may they kill you. But you can't 
imprison this message, can you? Imprison the messengers, kill the messengers, but the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. That is Luke, what Luke is trying to teach. It began with what? 120 people in the upper room in the book of Acts. Then Pentecost came forth. The wind blew, the tongues of fire came, and they preached in all these languages, intelligible languages. Everybody could hear their own language coming from this one group. And how many were added? 3,000 to their number. How many do we see here added to their number? 5,000. That's 8,000. And if you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, you see this, this lot of believers, this I call this mer the merry men and women of the church. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, many people believe, the scholars have said, this is about 10,000 men and women in a short period of time have confessed the name of Jesus. They are followers of the way, and they are following Jesus. And they're in the most powerful city in Judaism, in Jerusalem. Do you understand the threat the Sadducees feel? This is a movement growing out of control, and it must be crushed. That's what's happening. It's good for us to know that in the story. So you can see the courage of God's people. You can see the courage of Peter and of John as they are arrested, as they seem to be fearless, and they come before the Sanhedrin. Now, the organization of the Sanhedrin is modeled after a text in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, which had to do with 70 rulers. And of course, Moses was at the head, right, or, you know, with Aaron, but there were 70 rulers. And the Sanhedrin had 71 members. The high priest was the member, and the rest were made up mostly of Sadducees and a minority of Pharisees, but often they were the, well, they were the lawyers of the law. They tended to have the least amount of power, the Pharisees, within the 70. And it's important for us to see that they would have been seated in a semicircle, and there is seemingly a crowd. It appears that actually the man who has been healed, who was crippled, and he's the age of 40, is there in their presence, and it appears that there's a crowd that has gathered. They haven't been pushed out. This is a public hearing. It's not like the hearing that Jesus experienced, that kangaroo court in the middle of the night. But needless to say, it's quite a drama. Must have been quite a noise as well. And also, what is interesting about uh, their meetings is all you needed is 23 members to make a quorum. I think we have it higher, but they all, all they needed is 23 members to make a quorum. Those who like meetings, there you go. A little bit on the, the Sanhedrin and how and what happened then. But what is important, I think, for us to see is the readers, especially what Luke is trying to highlight, the who's who of the Sadducees have come for this moment. There's, of course, Annas. Annas is actually not the high priest, functioning. He lost that high priesthood. It was removed by the Romans in 15 AD. It's much later than that here. And Caiaphas is actually the high priest, but who do people acknowledge as the high priest? Still Annas, isn't it? And these two men we know were instrumental in conspiring to have the Lord Jesus Christ murdered or crucified. 
And of course, there is the two other names. Alexander, we don't know much about. John, it appears it's possible that he was the high priest for a year or two. And of course, the other men of the high priest. But it's the questioning that we want to look at. The questioning. And it's a simple question that they have for Peter and John. By what power or what name did you do this? Now, Jesus was asked this same kind of questioning. When he, well, I think you can remember that little piece where he cleansed the temple, drove the money changers out of the temple, caused a big stir. And Jesus had a tendency of doing that wherever he went. Uh, and so we have that here. They questioned Jesus' authority. And it said, they said to him, uh, tell us by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? So when the Sadducees and the Pharisees, primarily the Sadducees, are questioning Peter and John, they're saying, by what authority are you teaching these things? Right? By what authority are you teaching these things or power? And it's Peter's response. It's a famous response, and I want to read it again because there's something very important from the very beginning. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone, speaking of Jesus, the stone the builders have rejected, which has become the capstone. This is from Psalm 118. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You hear the catechism language. was just taking this right here taking the apostolic witness before the Sanhedrin. And they put that in the catechism to, again, so it would direct us right back to the Word, the living Word of God. I think what's important to see in actually Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but now in the ministry of the apostles. It is very clear that this ordinary man, this fisherman who had spent time with Jesus, is being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's being spirit-powered. This is not a man in the flesh, but this is a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus actually said this, didn't he, to them? You'll find this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 11. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, authorities... Do not worry how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. I sometimes wonder, what was Peter experiencing at that moment? Was he remembering his denials of knowing Jesus? Was he remembering that Jesus was tried before this court? Was there all kinds of fears going through him? We don't know. It's not said. But the Holy Spirit comes upon him, doesn't he? Just as Jesus promised, 
Maybe it's this promise that was going through his mind that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will give you words to say. And that is what's happening here. It's very clear. Luke wants us to see that as a fulfillment of what Jesus already had prophesied to his apostles. And when he begins to preach, where is all the glory? Where is all the glory? Is it on John? Is it on Peter? Is it on the apostles? Where is all the glory? To Jesus, isn't it? Oh, that's why we can guarantee it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's focused on Christ. It's not focused on these men. Even, even Peter reminded the crowd that he did nothing. It's Jesus that did this. Jesus healed the cripple. Not him, not John, but Jesus. Oh, glory, laud, and honor be to our King. Before well, the men that crucified him. Isn't that interesting? For the third time already in the gospel of, in, in Acts, he has said to these powerful people, you killed him. You killed him. You crucified him. That's, a, that's quite a thing to say, isn't it? Before those you know that do not desire to do you any good, these are the very ones that led Jesus to the slaughter. It's a non-seeker-sensitive preaching. That's what I can say. There's no seeker-sensitive preaching, but this is the preaching these men need to hear, don't they? Because they are murderers. They are conspirers. They are leading the lambs of Israel into the abyss. And so he preaches as one who tells these men that they need to repent. This is a call to repentance, really, too, because there is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. By which men might be saved. Now, we see very clearly that there, these are exposing claims. That the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ exposes us, doesn't it? The true gospel of Jesus Christ does not speak about things always we want to hear. It often tells us this, you're a sinner and you're a, you need to repent. The house you're in is on fire. It's on fire. And you need to run and flee from that house into the arms of Jesus. There is no other name. There are no other wounds. There is no other piercing of the side by which men and women might be saved, but Jesus Christ, flee to him. Because these men are on a highway to hell. And they deserve it, don't they? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel exposes sin. And you know it's good because when I know I have a sin problem, I know that I need to get well, right? I know that I need a remedy. I know that I need a doctor. I know that I need a great physician. And that great physician is Jesus Christ. And I think of Luke. He was a physician. He's pointing them to the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, this is an exclusive claim, isn't it? The gospel proclaims an exclusive claim that is not popular, whether it was in the first century or in the 21st century. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved. There's no other name, only Jesus. 
Muhammad as your prophet and Allah, one God, will not save. The 180 million gods of Hinduism will not save. Buddhism will not save. Shintoism will not save. Your ancestral religions will not save. Only the name, only Jesus saves. We even filter our prayers in the public square, don't we? And we often pray to a God, a benign God with no characteristics. You wouldn't know who this God is often. That's how people pray, especially in politics. But if you're a Christian, who are you? Christ. And so when you pray, you know you pray to a particular God who is the only God who has revealed himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So in whose name and authority do you pray? In the name of Jesus the Son of God, the Son of Mary, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you know what? Too many Christians have been ashamed of the name of Jesus, and it's disgusting because there is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. And what a better place in the public square to stand up and say, who I belong to, and I actually pray to a particular God who's revealed himself, who's the only God. And you know what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of Jesus because it's the only way for men and women to be saved. And so much of the church has lost its spine. But fortunately, we still have a living word, right? That convicts us of our failings, that calls us back to Christ, that encourages with the witness of these men who stood up in the face of death and proclaimed Christ as the only way. I don't know about you, that encourages me to not keep my mouth shut. It encourages me, it ought to encourage you. The Sanhedrin has to make a decision, so they shove everybody out of the room. And of course, what are they concerned about? They're concerned about the name of Jesus, aren't they? This is the name they want to shut down. It's the only thing they want to shut down in their proclamation, isn't it? It's not even the resurrection anymore. It's who? In his name, in Jesus' name. We got to stop this. They have to stop teaching in Jesus' name. And they were very concerned. You can see fear is fomenting in this group of 71 men. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn. And I don't think these were light warnings. I don't think Luke gave them all here. We must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name, in his name. That is what is so perplexing to these men who have been convicted. And they have seen that these men are men of courage. These are unschooled men, ordinary men, and yet they have such courage. And we know they're Jesus' disciples. They know exactly what we did. You see? They know exactly what we did. How we stirred up the crowd to yell, crucify him, crucify him. They know who we are. And yet, look at the courage. 
I love that when the, when, the, when the unbelievers and the enemies of Christ stand up and say, these men have courage. Isn't that what we need? Men and women of courage? And the world will stand up, and even the opposers of Christ will stand up and see the church's courage, and the church has courage. There are some saints that are showing such courage around the world. Most of their names cannot be said because they're in prisons and dark holes, and no one has them on a list. And they'll probably never come out and will never know their names. But they haven't been silent. They have decided to gather in homes, even if the police come and take them away. They will continue to minister the gospel in the underground, even if Xi smashes their church and makes it into rubble and then tries as many ways in order to capture them and imprison them and send them some gulag way away. And why do they do that? In his name. Still happening today. This is living today. Men and women standing up before the Sanhedrins of the world and no one cares about them. But Jesus does. And he's the king that can raise the dead. He's the king that can make a kingdom from nothing, from a little seed, and it fills the earth. He's the only king that will rule and reign for all eternity. And that's who they're representing. And that's who our brothers and sisters are representing in the world and in dark prisons that nobody cares about. Yeah, Jesus is a problem, isn't he? He really is. He's a problem for the world. He's a problem for, for the religions. He's a, he's a problem for politicians. But he's the only hope for the nations. He's the only hope for this nation. The right politician, the right policies, the right legislation will not save us from our sin. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And that's a problem, isn't it? But that's the Jesus that must be proclaimed in the world. And of course, we need courage, and so we ought to pray, oh, Holy Spirit, give me courage like you gave courage to Peter and to John, and as you gave courage to Priscilla and Aquila, and as you gave courage to Mary and Elizabeth, and as you gave courage to our Lord Jesus Christ, and as you have given courage to the saints for 2,000 years, help me to be courageous. Help me not to be silent. Help me to speak the Word of God, because it is the only name under heaven by which men might be saved. And of course, in light of the wondrous kingdom that will come and the trumpet sounds at the last day, we need celebration. And what I love about this, the ending of this story, what are the people doing in the midst of the threats? What is the crowd doing? They are praising the living God, aren't they? They're celebrating. They're filled with joy because of what God has done. Because how he's revealing himself in their generation with these miracles, but he's still doing the same today, isn't he? Anyone that comes to faith in Jesus Christ, you know, that's a miracle. Because you must be born again. You must die and be risen to new life. It is a miracle. And that miracle is happening all the time. And so we should sing and we should dance that those who were once crippled by their sin 
have been freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just happened. 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 That's how fast it's happening around the world. Every few seconds. Doesn't that make you want to celebrate and sing and shout, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the sweet name of Jesus, the lover of our souls, who still intercedes for us, loving us, us sinners. Oh, by your word, encourage us. Remind us again and again, there is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved by. It's the name of Jesus, sweet, sweet name of Jesus. Bless your people as they sing this sweet name, as they speak this, the sweet name of Jesus to their children, as they speak it into the world, as they speak it to a friend, as they speak it in a letter, as they speak it as they talk to someone who does not know Christ, and they speak of Jesus. Give us courage, O Holy Spirit. Enable us to speak the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.